Vishnu, look at that shirt, man. That's pretty sweet. Isn't it the coolest shirt? I got it for my best friend in the whole wide world. Ooh, the coolest community in the world. Dude, so for those that are just listening, Vishnu is showing his, if in doubt, log it out shirt that you can get on the MLOps community website because I was crazy enough to try and create a merchandise shop that our accountants tell us is a horrible idea and has only been bleeding <laughs> money since the start of since its inception. But anyway, we're here today to talk with Ernest Chan. Who is this guy? Ernest is a great, great, great communicator, blogger, and a data scientist at Duo Security, where he helped start and run their entire ML infra and platform team. Really cool guy who's written what I call are like the big tech ML blog posts where he goes through all of their different ML systems and synthesizes the lessons on model deployment, model serving, and how to build an ML platform. What do you think of the podcast? Well, that actually was one of my big takeaways is how he was able to learn all of that and then bring it back to Duo and implement it. And when we talked through that with him and the challenge that he faced when he was implementing it, those were huge. What about you? What kind of takeaways did you have? I really enjoyed how he communicated about super complicated software engineering concepts and machine learning engineering concepts effortlessly. He really was able to toggle between talking about resource utilization and then what kind of models that should be built for particular use cases. And I learned a lot about that from like a maturity standpoint as a machine learning engineer myself. So it was a great conversation. Listen all the way through for all the gems and onto the podcast. There we go. And uh, if you want to buy one of them shirts that Vishnu's got on, you go to mlops.community and find all of our merchandise. Peace out. Woo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of MLOps Coffee Sessions. As usual, I'm Vishnu and I have Demetrios here with me. How are you doing, Demetrios? I am doing amazing today. Absolutely amazing. I took an ice bath this morning, so things ah, are good. Okay, that'll do it. That'll do it. And today we have Ernest from Duo Security joining us. Thank you so much for joining us, Ernest. It's a real pleasure. Of course. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been listening to a lot of the podcasts, fan of what you all you guys do. So you've been kind of blasting through my ear for the past several days. It's cool to <laughs> do it live now. I hope you can deal with the sound of my voice. Oh, that puts and how a lot of pressure now. on us, man. <laughs> yeah, how it's going to devil you at night and during the day at all times. <laughs> but what we have you here Getting on to, to discuss. Yes, yeah. What we have you here on to discuss today is not the sound of Demetrius or my voice, but ML platforms. You have put together some of the most thoughtful content about MLOps and ML infrastructure recently, and in particular, parsing lessons from big tech ML systems. I've really enjoyed reading your blog posts. The community has really enjoyed reading them. Uh, and I wanted to start by asking you what led you to write this series of posts and take a case study approach? Yeah, um, so it was kind of a surprise for that it took off. So thanks for the kind words and for, for enjoying it. Uh, it's kind of my first blog post after the first one, which is kind of a practice one. Um, but basically, um, a little context is Duo's core business is multi-factor authentication services for other companies. And then several years ago, um, we started to branch out. So one of the products 
that uh, is this branching out is a threat detection product called Dual Trust Monitor, which I helped build. And after launching that for general availability, um, I was looking at the list of things the product manager has in mind for like future ML projects. And I was basically thinking like, we're gonna kind of have to start from scratch for a lot of this because we didn't build a lot of reusable components in the first uh, iteration. Uh, we could reuse the workflow orchestration piece, but a lot of the other parts were custom. Um, so then I advocated for um, an ML infrastructure team that started small, and I was very interested in what other companies do. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, players, uh, companies in the space that are kind of ahead of us in the infrastructure and platform journey. Uh, they're like really good about publishing what they do. Um, and I thought that like diving in could be helpful to learn. Um, my girlfriend says that sometimes I have an obsessive personality for certain things. So I really dove in and then I, I thought that the research would be useful for other people and I wrote the post. Absolutely, it, it certainly has been. And a couple of thoughts there, you know, number one, it's a tale as old as time, data scientists slash ML engineers frustrated by the process as a, at a given company and then says, how can I do this better, right? And, yeah. and kudos to you for doing that. I thought one of the coolest things about the post, anybody who hasn't read it, will include it in the, in, the, in the show links, is that it really dives into a number of different big techs, right? A lot of times we'll have one-off discussions about Uber, about Etsy, about Google, about Facebook, but there are 12, 13, 14, sometimes 15 companies that you researched and that you included in your analysis, which I find to be a real strength. So with that in mind, and with that comprehensiveness sort of being a strength of, of your analysis, walk us through the five components of an ML platform that you noticed, and let is there anything that you would add to that since it's been about like six to eight months since that first post? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'll start with the first part. Um, and yeah, definitely wanted to cover a lot of uh, different companies to kind of find commonalities. Um, I, I didn't actually cover you know, the super comprehensive platforms like Facebook's or Google's, uh, partly because they feel even more out of reach than what other people have. And I, I didn't know if it'd be as useful for those of us with uh, less mature platforms. Um, but yeah, the main components are there's a feature store, uh, which kind of feeds into both model training and serving. Then there is workflow orchestration, which helps you orchestrate your model training pipelines. Um, the output of your model training pipelines goes into a model registry. Uh, and then there is a serving system uh, that can serve your model in uh, online or batch. Um, and once something is online, of course, you want some sort of monitoring uh, for models. Usually you want some specialized model quality monitoring um, because you have to worry about uh, data metrics on top of your operational metrics. Um, so, you know, I, there definitely are more components uh, in platforms, but I want to show uh, the more fundamental components so that it's sort of a more manageable system and it's also easier to learn. Uh, I think one way to think about these components that could be useful for some of the software engineers uh, listening is uh, sort of comparisons of these components to standard software engineering tools. So. Workflow orchestration is kind of like CI. Mm -hmm. You can create pipelines or DAGs for testing and building your code. Then the result is an artifact. 
you know, for code, it might be an artifact in Artifactory or a Docker image in a container registry or a tarball on S3, but for ML, it's a model artifact that goes to the model registry. And then your model serving system is kind of like your standard stateless uh, service. If it's an online serving system, um, the caveat is it uses much more CPU and memory than your standard like IO bound uh, service. Uh, monitoring is similar to your observability tools, um, except that you need to monitor model metrics along with your operational metrics. Um, I think one of the most interesting components is the feature store because it's it's different from like a standard database. It's used offline to create the artifacts you deploy. There are also strict requirements for parity between online and offline. And it's also kind of a point of collaboration between teams. So it's got like features of like data warehouses, online, you know, databases you use for uh, real-time traffic and so on. Um, but these analogies aren't perfect. Uh, it's just, just wanted to note that there's a lot of similarities with the software tools we already know, and we shouldn't th think of them as completely novel things we can borrow from some of the lessons of these, you know, really robust uh, software components as Such we're on point. this journey. That's a really great point. And I wanted to quickly comment on that because I think a lot of, I think a lot of ML engineers and data scientists, this is a thesis of mine I've been harping on for a while, walk into the field, starting with model.fit, right? You start with the models and then you figure out all the other infrastructure. And you don't realize how that other infrastructure has parallels to existing software engineering and where it's different. And I think what you pointed out there about feature stores in particular took me a while to understand, you know, what is the difference between a data warehouse slash database that is used in all the other core data functions of a company and a feature store, which appears to just be for machine learning engineers. Um, there's There are a lot of great blog posts about it. I think Logical Clocks has a great one. I would recommend checking it out, but I think that's a great point. And I know Dimitrios had something else that he wanted to ask you about. So I'm gonna kick it to him. Yes, yes. I was looking at the blog and just thinking about the limitations that you highlighted and what some of these different lessons would be that you wouldn't necessarily advocate for everyone to go out and use, right? So you talk about there, there's some great things that you see as patterns, but what are some of these anti-patterns or patterns that companies are using that you wouldn't necessarily say others need and I almost, um, like I, I guess I'll leave it at that and then I'll ask you a follow-up question. <laughs> okay, so think kind of the anti-patterns. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have a great answer to this one. Um, I guess another way to think of it is like, you know, in terms of those existing components, like what might be some things that you don't need to start out with uh, yeah, or exactly. maybe for a long time. Um, what one thing I've been thinking about is I think workflow orchestration for ML workloads might not be as critical. Like for data workloads, I think they could be very critical with your like ETL, ELT stuff. But I think a lot of times data scientists don't necessarily need complex DAGs and a DAG can be turned into a sequence of steps that at that point, just like collapse everything and put into a single job. Like it's not the best design, but I think a lot of times data scientists just need to run something, run a job on a schedule. Um, instead of having to manage airflow. I've definitely um, felt that way. Yeah, yeah. I think it's easy to start and say like, oh, I want these branching scenarios and fan outs, but a lot of times if 
you can put in one job, it's it's a little simpler. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of related to your podcast with Skyler, uh, I think one great place to start is with uh, how do you package and serve a model. Um, if we break down like, you know, ML systems into like there's a development phase and then a production phase, usually the development phase is like really well known um, and easy to do either locally or on a single remote machine. But then it's the like integration with your application that becomes much harder. I don't yeah. know if that answered your question completely. I think it did. What do you think, Demetrius? For sure. Yeah. And do you have uh, up there? it's exactly that. Like sometimes what's overkill and what is necessary, especially for those people that are just trying to realize the business value right away. Right. And right. Yeah, I think so, I, I see. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Ernest. I was, I was just going to say it's kind of related to like Vishnu you've talked about before. Like it's important to invest early in platforms. But, you know, I think, yeah, there is like a sweet spot in when do you start doing that? When is it too late? When is it too early? And there are kind of risks to both. I completely agree. It's a delicate balance, right, of sort of supporting the breadth required for a platform to be effective and going into the depth required to like actually create solutions that create business value from a modeling and model generation standpoint, right? In terms of actually creating models and putting them into production and then keeping them going. I think one of the things that you summarized well in the blog post is this idea that what platforms are about is how do data scientists repeatedly create value? And I thought that your quote right there was actually just the most succinct distillation of, oh yeah, this is why we should create a platform because we're doing this once and we're doing it a million other times. And we want them to repeatedly deliver value. As you thought about that sort of focus for why platforms exist, what level of maturity or completion did you observe in these companies' efforts, Etsy, Uber, Spotify, et cetera? And did you feel like anything was still missing or maybe half-baked or, 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 or things that you felt that could have been done better? Um, yeah, the latter part is a little hard because usually they don't write about it. Usually it's like you write about what you have and then the other stuff is like, maybe you have it, maybe you don't. Um, But yeah, I mean, could you repeat the first part of your question again? What level of maturity did you observe? I mean, you talked about, you talked about, you referred to Skylar, right? Where Skylar sort of said, start with the serving component, start with how the entire interface will be used and then work backwards, right? right? How sophisticated did you find that sort of outside in approach at these companies? How, how fully formed was it across the entirety of that process? Yeah, I think most of it is pretty fully formed. Um, okay. From, from my perspective, like they all have, they all have like really strong model serving capabilities, which makes sense because that's actually how you deliver value. Um, model monitoring is seems very mature but there are some that you know are still working on it or don't uh have all the capabilities um i think it's easy to like put that to the side for a little bit like as long as you kind of can monitor your metrics in some coarse grain way um and your application isn't a mission critical application like if you get bad recommendations not the end of the world then 
it's not as important to like be super sophisticated with your model monitoring. Um, yeah, and then, you know, definitely with uh, feature stores is probably the most impressive. It seems like most of the companies have a very sophisticated feature store that they built in-house specifically for their needs. Um, and it's probably the thing that's hardest for uh, smaller companies to, to stand up um, by themselves. So out of these different ones that you've studied, which platform or which uh, architecture did you admire the most? There's, I guess there's like different, there's some architectures that are very impressive because of the specific um, capabilities. Like I really like, uh, I think it's, yeah, PayPal and uh, Uber who have very sophisticated systems around shadow mode. Um, and that's very useful for delivering value. Um, but other than that, what's kind of impressive is the concerns that they abstract away from uh, the data scientists in a uh, way that like provides a great user experience and like makes it so they don't have to think about things. So I think like there are some things um, like Intuit's feature of like, you know, once you have a model, then we have the service that helps you basically scale test it and uh, help you determine the resource requirements. And that seems super useful. Um, so, so yeah, I, like that is, I think I think of more about it in terms of features that would be like a great user experience uh, rather than like, you know, a specific platform because a lot of them have, you know, really great architectures and features already. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of impressive, impressive engineering that goes into building these platforms. And I sort of have a really big picture question here, which is, you know, we had on Jacopo from Covio to talk about this idea of MLOps at reasonable scale, which is, you know, the scale most companies, most companies aren't Pinterest and Etsy and Uber just with oodles and oodles of engineers and dollars to pay for an ML platform like this to be built. And so with that, we have this scenario in our company a lot where the team is about five to 10 data scientists. There are about double digit models that are about to come on into production or already are in production, you know, maybe 10 or 15. And the company is starting to grow, might be a little bit sort of series B, C. And there is a push from the engineering team for the data scientists to get their shit together. So the data science team hires an ML engineer. To that ML engineer or to that company, based on your research around how to build ML platforms that look good and do good things for big tech companies, what advice would you give them? Yeah, um, there's definitely like in that scenario, it seems like I've, I've met companies before where it's like they accumulate so much tech debt that they want someone to come in and fix all the problems, which at that point is a little too late because your data scientists are probably disgruntled. The candidate will be less appealing once they hear how many times you say tech debt. Um, but at that point, it's the easiest to make this case for staffing because you desperately need, need, need the help. Um, but yeah, I think uh, that, you know, it, I feel like I have to say it depends, um, but I think most of the time you start with, you know, how do you package and deploy your model um, and then uh, go from there and think about how do you make that more repeatable. Um, I actually kind of ran into a similar problem recently when I was working with a nonprofit 
and I'm helping them build their first ML system. Um, and some constraints are, as a nonprofit, cost is a concern. Um, so, you know, I, I thought like we uh, use serverless as much as possible, both for the cost and for the maintenance benefits. Um, and also their data science team doesn't really have uh, anyone with strong engineering skills. So I'm not gonna build something really complex and expect them to maintain it. I'm not gonna like try to stand up a feature store or have them deploy things on Kubernetes. Um, and what I did was to create an architecture for that system and then set up the code repo in a way that they can easily test, build, and deploy the model and the code around it. So they can pretty much self-service deploy the, the model. Um, and because there's some structure around it, the data scientist can, can do what uh, he needs to do to like improve that model. Um, but going back to your question, I think before thinking about platforms, it's important to think about like, do we have a solid data platform or at least a repeatable way to get data um, that you need for an analytics in general and modeling? Uh, that's kind of a mistake we made at Duo. We thought we had a solid data warehouse ETL platform and turned out it wasn't. We had to rebuild it and that kind of took mm -hmm. a lot of time. Um, and I think after you have a good data platform, uh, then you can focus on ML infrastructure. And I'm making the distinction between ML infrastructure and ML platforms. Uh, the main difference between um, ML infrastructure is about unlocking new capabilities, and it's less focused on rep rep repeatability. So it's really easy to build useful ML infrastructure that's not necessarily repeatable. You want to design it with repeat repeatability in mind, but um, maybe that's not the first goal because you want, just want to make it possible to do something. Um, so I think after that, you know, when you, once you have some infrastructure, then you can kind of redesign things um, in a way that it becomes a platform. Um, and kind of similar to some, what some other guests have said, like sometimes when you do it manually or more custom the first time, you have a better understanding of your requirements and then it's easier to generalize it. There's something cool that I am thinking about with what you did. Again, this is a bit more big picture, but you saw that we need some kind of infrastructure and we need to aim towards having a platform. And so you had this initiative that you championed inside of the company. How was that process? Because we talk a lot about how MLOps is more than just what tools you decide to build or if you're going to do it in-house or build versus buy, all that kind of stuff. What were some of the value props that you went to managers with or the upper management and said, look, this is important because of X, Y, Z, and how did you get buy-in? Yeah, um, so I was lucky, or I'm lucky, to have a very supportive manager. Um, but part of the conversation, you know, it started out with our one-on-ones where, you know, I basically said, like, we want to build these things, the product manager wants these things, but, like, here's the state of the system we help build, and here's the parts of it that are reusable and the parts that are going to be, like, pretty hard to reuse across projects. Um, and then from that... I wrote a proposal, it's kind of like a vision document in a way about like, you know, these, this is the type of platform and infrastructure we can build. Um, and these are sort of the core tenants and how we might do it. Um, then I shared it with my manager. She told me it was way too long, which was correct and helped me edit it down. And then I actually, you know, but she, at that point she was already kind of invested. Um, and then I shared it out with the rest of the team. We managed to move, um, 
a uh, engineer who is more working on the analytics platform to to like help out in this uh, area and then we kind of started uh, from there um, and and the first thing we did was basically meet with data scientists to be included as kind of a previous data scientist to uh, figure out what the pain points were um, what were the you know most like high impact and low effort things that we could do at first to kind of demonstrate value uh, with building out infrastructure uh, for, for uh, our systems. All right, so let's change gears real fast and let's jump into the other article that I, we both thought was great around deployment. And specifically, maybe you can go over just different common model deployment patterns that you saw and you have learned about and potentially are using Sure, yeah. Um, the most basic one that I saw is, um, I mean, I guess that counts as batch. Yes, it's it's like, it's batch, but in a way where you enumerate all the possible inputs and you just put it in the lookup table. Um, and I think that's like one specific type of batch. But yeah, in terms of batch, there's just like batch, you process some batch of data or you enumerate all the inputs and put your um, uh, outputs and predictions in some set of table. So all you need to do, you know, to serve your model is to look it up in a database. Um, and then there's, of course, the stateless service. Uh, usually it's a pull-based model where like clients send requests to the service and they get a prediction back. But um, some, company, some companies also have sort of a push-based model where the service uh, consumes events through some stream and then pushes the prediction somewhere. Um, but yeah, recently I wrote a blog post, which is more generally about uh, like architectures I've seen in industry for serving a huge number of models. Um, part of the motivation was uh, at Duo, we train per customer models, but in a batch cycle, which leads to a huge number of models. And, you know, I was thinking like, how do we serve this in real time? It seems really hard. So I wanted to dig in and see uh, what different companies have done. Um, different companies have uh, publish your own architectures, but a bunch of them are surprisingly similar in, in how they handle this case. Um, so that's what the newer blog post is about. And I can dig more into it if you'd like. When you deconstructed all of these different ways of doing it, and you were looking at how to apply this to what you're doing at Duo, what were some main takeaways that you had? And it seems like I'm getting the sense of like the way that you learn or a pattern from you, Ernest, and it feels like you just go out, you try and learn about all the best and the brightest in their fields, and then you synthesize it down to something that you can put out as a digestible piece of content. And I imagine that is so that you can take it back and use it while at Duo. What were some of these like huge learnings that you took from writing this blog post? Yeah, um, that is a big part of how I learn. Uh, I guess one issue is with it is usually you get a snapshot point in time, uh, and it's you know you don't learn as much about how they prioritize what to build first uh, in some cases. Um, but yeah, at Duo, uh, I think you know the first thing that um, I sort of realized was like you know, thinking about the distinction between infrastructure and platforms, one of them being repeatability. Um, we have to kind of start with the infrastructure side. Um, and then from there, think about how to turn it into a platform. 
Um, but then one big lesson, you know, from both what I've read and from talking with data scientists is like, uh, we don't have great visibility into what happens in production. Um, and this might be the case for a lot of different companies at Duo, most employees don't have um, access to production uh, for security purposes. So I can't go and look at things in production. So basically we have these huge pipelines running in production and we wanted to uh, get more visibility into the model metrics, into the artifacts that are produced. Um, and early on, like a quick win is uh, getting access to those. So one of the things we did was to set up a model registry. That's not something that we had. Um, you know, we had workflow orchestration, we had a model training pipeline, or the way we serve a model is in batch. Uh, so, you know, out of those five core components, the main things we didn't have were the feature store, you know, a robust sort of repeatable model quality uh, uh, monitoring solution, and then a model registry. And it seemed like the fir best first place to start with the was with the model registry. Um, and that prov alone provided a lot of visibility into the metrics for a model, because not only could we uh, give data scientists access to the UI, but we could pipe those metrics, we use MLflow um, into our data warehouse so they can actually do like in-depth trend analysis on these models. Um, and since we train models every single day for every customer, you do need some analytic tools to like be able to really dig into how performance changes. Um, the other thing we did wasn't even really part of the platform. It was just like to set up some simple S3 bucket monitoring. So we copy artifacts from one place to a place that data scientists can actually see, make it, you know, provide scoped access and audited access to see those artifacts in production. Um, so that's another one. Um, and then after that, we kind of reevaluated re um, and we saw that there was, uh, there was kind of a lack of standards in how we write tables um, uh, and like write and read uh, tables uh, from our pipelines in general. Um, and uh, that coupled with the need to uh, decouple our mono, to like split our monolithic pipeline led us to uh, adopting Delta Lake as a data format, um, which is, it's still in progress, but it's gonna help us a lot in like making sure that different processes can write and read from the same tables. Um, and it's also a standard data format that we can extract uh, metrics and insights from put into our data warehouse and kind of act as like an interface between uh, parts of our uh, system. A quick one for you, and then I see Vishnu wants to ask a question. So I, I just, as you're talking about, you were reading all these blog posts and then you had the point in time idea of what they did, but you didn't get how they prioritized things how, as you just talked about, oh, well, this seemed like a low-hanging fruit, this seemed like a low-hanging fruit, was that how you were prioritizing? It was like, well, this is like an easy win, let's go for this first, and then you just start adding easy wins and easy wins and, and building from there? It's, it's kind of a combination of, um, so the prioritization is like once we have enumerated the pain points for all the different parts of the data science lifecycle, you know, what's the combination of high impact plus like low effort. And and we also have to take into account like what, you know, sort of what ordering do we sequence these improvements? Does like doing one first 
make the rest a lot easier. So those are all the different factors. It's not, you know, we don't always want to pick the easiest wins. Um, it's it's, it's kind of like a, uh, yeah, some sort of sorting metric that we came up with arbitrarily in our heads to decide uh, what to work on. But I think one thing that I, it's semi-arbitrary. Uh, one thing that I uh, gleaned from all the research is like all these platforms are kind of different because um, they really, uh, you know, try to prioritize what's useful for, for their companies. So it seems like to me, like Intuit, they prioritized, um, they put a lot of emphasis on privacy, compliance, and reliability. And so that's where the scale testing comes in. They have, I didn't write about this, but they have like sophisticated ways to ensure compliance um, on the data that is used by the models. Um, but there's, there's other companies where it's more about um, super high scale, low latency serving, and that's what they prioritize. So, you know, I saw these changes and kind of understood, like, I can't just follow what they did. I have to kind of follow their approach, um, really understand the requirements of our system and use that as prioritization. So good. That makes a ton of sense. One question I have is, can you just explain what Delta Lake is and how that solved the problem that you were facing uh, with this uh, metrics analysis? Yeah, sure. So Delta Lake, it's so basically um, a common pattern is you would process data with a processing engine like Spark and then you would dump it to object storage like S3. Mm -hmm. And you know, your data table isn't like one file. It's like split across a ton of Parquet files. Mm -hmm. um, and what Delta Lake provides, one of the main things it provides is asset transactions on those tables. Mm. Um, and so you can, you know, you can transactionally update a single table. And if it fails, it's not like you update certain files and then the rest are not updated or you, you wrote, you know, you wrote append, you appended some parts to the table but you miss some parts. Um, and so one of the issues with using Parquet by itself is you don't get these transactional guarantees. So if I want to like, if I want to have one place in my S3 storage that says this is the table of features and I have some pipelines that write my features to it, if it fails halfway, uh, you're kind of screwed because it for, Spark will first delete all the files and then it will write. And then at that point, it's kind of hard to know that it failed. And if you have like uh, consumers that are reading from that table at the same time, it's going to get inconsistent data. You might see parts of the new data, parts of the old data, you might see none of it if it's reading at you know exactly the wrong time. Um, so kind of having this abstraction of tables on top of S3 makes it easier to uh, like think about artifacts that we persist as like you know not just like a lot of a list of parquet files, but tables we can update over time and delete and kind of like put some uh, tools around. And also in terms of the consumers, it's easier to like know that I'm getting a good snapshot of this table um, and have like decoupled uh, consumers, like writers and consumers mm -hmm. of uh, the same table, which is hard to do with uh, Spark in the native way that it, that it uh, does writing and reading. It's a great explanation. That's a really great explanation. And related to that, because you're such a good explainer, I wanted to ask you more about model rollouts and shadow mode. It's something that you highlighted as a sort of design pattern in your serving and model deployment blog. I get this question asked 
a fair bit to me, where people say, hey, Vishnu, if I'm building an ML system and suddenly something like COVID happens and all the data that I had before is completely skewed in practice, what do I do to solve that? I think shadow mode is a solution. Do you agree? And can you explain how these companies that are doing this at massive scale implement it? Yeah, so that's actually going back to, um, you know, what might be missing from the blog post. I, you know, I, I think I would have highlighted shadow mode more um, since it's such a powerful technique. Um, but, you know, because it's kind of part of the serving system it's kind of, and the monitoring system, but you also have, you know, other components that enable shadow mode and make it easy to do. Um, in terms of like the COVID or like the massive data drift problem, I'm not sure if it would help the uh, existing model unless you turn it off. Uh, and, but I think it could help like in the general case of uh, testing changes really quickly. Right. Um, so uh, one, one thing that I liked is, uh, I think it was PayPal system, is um, not only do they make it really easy to do shadow mode, but you kind of um, schedule a time in so you don't have to like max out your compute. You can say like, I have these many slots for doing shadow mode. Um, and then a team can go in and say, I want to shadow this model for this time. And they can get the results for that time. Um, so that seems like a really great feature. Um, you know, another uh, great feature is, that, is just thinking about like, you know, what model am I shadowing? So, you, you know, you're not just deploying a single model, but you're trying to like pair it up with things to compare with. Um, and I think that is, is kind of a shift I had early on of thinking about like, you know, how do I do shadow mode? Um, but yeah, in general, uh, with shadow mode, you know, I kind of talked about like the user experience part, um, but it's really important to uh, make sure that your shadow deployment doesn't have as much priority on resources as your production requirement, uh, production deployment, and that it's kind of done in a way where it doesn't affect your production uh, traffic. That's a little hard sometimes because a lot of times they'll, you know, make access to the same data. You might have to route traffic to like, you know, both the production model and several travel tra uh, shadow models, which, you know, is going to impose more load in your system. But um, kind of doing it in a way where it's least interfering uh, uh, would be useful. One of the things I noticed in your blog post in your explanation just now and throughout this entire podcast is you have a real ability to understand the engineering challenges posed by machine learning in a very granular way. For example, I noticed in the serving post that you had a really nice sort of tangent on resource virtualization or utilization, sorry. Uh, and I thought that that was really useful because I think a lot of machine learning blog posts tend to gloss over the particulars of the engineering challenges and they tend to sort and, and you end up having to figure that out yourself you know when you're looking at your aws instance or, or or your or your resource utilization you're like what the heck is going on here there's not really those kind of call outs when we're talking about high level things like platform and some of the engineering challenges there and so with that observation i want to ask you are you an ml engineer or a data scientist how do you think about your career um, kind of in between. Uh, yeah, i data scientist by title, but I think I've been doing ML engineering stuff for a while. And yeah. I guess I, I think I heard at some 
a recent podcast that there's going to be a post called The Rise of the ML Platform Engineer at some point. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. But, uh, a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's would summarize maybe my last year of experience, uh, you know, infrastructure or platform engineering that way. Uh, but I've always kind of leaned more towards the engineering side. Um, you know, I've done a little bit of research and uh, prototyping uh, as well, uh, but I think I enjoy the engineering side a bit more. There's something that I wanted to ask you about with the platform that you have now, and it's mainly around like the trade-offs that you can run into when you're trying to have something that is flexible, a platform that can be used and molded into different ways by the end users, or something that's simple. And it, I feel like I've heard about how you have to choose one of these. I'm wondering how you look at that when you're trying to take into consideration, like, should it be more, should we go the simple route or should we go more flexible? Is, is one of those related to user experience or is the assumption like the user experience can be the same for either one? I, I would think that usually the simpler approach is easier to build a good user experience around, but I uh -huh. want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and it's mainly around like, we can create something that is very opinionated and simple, or we can mm -hmm. create something less opinionated and flexible because our engineers or our data scientists want to have that ability to tweak things. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, I think one interesting, like, uh, it kind of reminds me of Skylar's post of like data is wicked of you have to provide like different levels of control uh, or else, you know, people, no one's really satisfied. Um, and I think that's something that we've seen from these posts is like you, some of these companies, they start with uh, purely optimizing for like production needs. So mainly scale, reliability, uh, availability, that sort of thing. And then they kind of realize wait, data scientists don't want to write in this language or it's really cumbersome to use this. And, you know, this is an option to use uh, to use their services that deploy on this super high scale thing, but eventually they'll go towards like, we're going to support Python, we'll support your Python models. Maybe as an engineer, I'm not happy because it's not very efficient, but like it helps increase our business speed, which is what what's important. Um, so, so yeah, related, I think like having uh, a good user experience for like different uh, users at different levels of like engineering maturity is is really helpful. Um, but in general, I would say because the space moves so quickly, uh, probably don't want to like standardize on a specific technology or framework unless it's super well established. Um, so, you know, there's probably not much much risk in saying one of the models will support is XGBoost and the other is PyTorch because they're, you know, they've been around for a while and many people use it. But if you're going to say, I'm standardizing on this new framework that just came out and has like a blog post and 10 users, then that's probably not a great idea. I totally agree. Totally agree. As an early adopter myself, I, I have to I have to deal with that tension. Um, and with that, it's Barton, kind of, go ahead. Oh, sorry to interrupt. There's like this really good, uh, PowerPoint by an engineer called like choose boring technologies. And yeah, I feel like I saw that. Yeah, I don't somewhere. know. 
we'll yeah, find it's, that. it's been around for a while, but that's that's kind of part of the thinking. Like, yeah, you know, it's like I choose my SQL because it hasn't broken. Like, it it hasn't lost any data for the last ten years. Maybe it's not the best and shiniest object, but you know, that's that's part of the technology choice. Boring. It's funny because one of the uh, yeah. yeah one of the community members back in the day I remember Flavio he talked about how he wanted to create a boring conference and he's like we'll just have a conference about boring technology none of this cutting edge stuff we're just going to talk about the stuff that actually works and you can have no problem sleeping at night if you add it into your stack or you're using it so that, that would sweet be, man that'd be kind of cool like right in, like if they really dug into like you know it's all te technologies we've used 10 years ago but here's like the details of how it works really well and why it works really well. At least I think I would mm. geek out about that. Yeah, right? So sweet, man. I appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate your wisdom and your ability to take all of this information that is a lot to read and a lot of time that you obviously spent on studying up on these different patterns and then distill it into a blog article and distill it into your mind and regurgitate it for us. It's been more than helpful. I cannot thank you enough. Ernest, this was awesome. I am actually a duo. I remembered that I do use duo and nice. mainly for my Coinbase um, <laughs> double two, two factor authentication. So nice. yeah, sweet. But thanks again, man. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate the work you guys do around the podcast and the community. And thanks so much for having me on.